0: Section nine of Easy Lessons in Einstein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees Easy Lessons in Einstein by Edwin E. Lawson. Section nine. Who is Einstein? Albert Einstein was born in Germany in 1874. He early showed the bent of his genius and at the age of twelve, when his fellow-pupils were plodding along with their daily tasks, he was plunging through works of higher mathematics, borrowed from his teacher. He was only eighteen when he conceived the outlines of his theory, and ten years later it was ready to give to the world. He left Germany for Switzerland at the age of sixteen, and became naturalized as a Swiss citizen. His first academic position was the professorship of mathematical physics at the Zurich Polytechnic. Then the founding of the Kaiser Wilhelm Academy for Research at Berlin gave him opportunity to work out his theories undisturbed by other duties. Shortly before the war, he was called to Berlin to succeed the famous Dutch physicist, Professor van Hoff, in the academy. The object of this institution was the same as Carnegie had when he founded his institution for scientific research at Washington, which was to seek out the exceptional man wherever he may be found, and set him at his peculiar tasks. At Berlin, Einstein receives a salary of $4,500 and has nothing to do but sit and think. This he continued to do all through the five years of war and revolution as quietly and persistently as Kant at Königsberg during the wars and revolutions of a century before. Or as Archimedes at the siege of Syracuse, who was absorbed in drawing geometrical figures in the sand, his blackboard, when a Roman soldier ran him through with a spear. On two occasions, he took part in the world struggle going on about his study, both actions greatly to his credit. In the beginning, he refused to sign the Manifesto of the German Men of Science, denying all the charges against Germany. And at the time of the armistice, he signed an appeal in favor of the revolution. He is an ardent Zionist, and has promised to aid the Hebrew University, which is to be founded at Jerusalem. According to tradition, Isaac Newton was led to his theory of gravitation. By observing an apple falling from a tree in his garden. The newspaper correspondents start a similar tradition by reporting that Einstein got his theory of gravitation by observing a man falling from the roof of a building in Berlin. Now a man has the advantage of an apple in that he is able to tell his sensations. When Dr. Einstein, who had seen the accident from his library window in the top story of a neighboring apartment house, reached the spot, he found the man had hit upon a pile of soft rubbish, and had escaped almost without injury asked how it felt to fall, he told Dr. Einstein that he had no sensation of downward pull at all. This led Dr. Einstein to consider whether the relativity theory, which he had applied only to the case of uniform motion in a straight line, could not be extended to diform or accelerated motion by gravitation. So the special relativity theory, which he had enunciated in 1905, developed ten years later into a generalized relativity theory. Feral Gemeinart, Relativitätstheorie HOW TO LOSE WEIGHT A man falling out of an airplane is obeying a natural impulse, namely the force of gravitation. So long as he does not resist he is free as air, light as a feather, and altogether comfortable. He can look down with complacency and contempt on the poor mortals below him, who are trying to stand up against this natural impulse and laboriously dragging one foot after another as they crawl about the earth, when they might be flying through space without effort as he is it is only when he tries to stop his free-fall by bumping against the ground, that he gets into trouble on account of gravitation. It was in this way that the Calvinists, who were a sort of mathematical theologians, conceived of the fall of man. The sinner is simply obeying the force of natural depravity, namely, moral gravity, and so long as he is conscienceless and does not consider his inevitable end, he has no knowledge of the moral law and is quite happy in his downfall. A person falling freely loses all his weight. His hat does not press down on his head. His feet do not press down on his shoes. If he lets go of his walking-stick, it does not fall down at his feet. It stands upright, and simply travels along with him. For as Galileo showed when he dropped his big and little cannon-ball off the leaning tower of Pisa, all bodies fall with the same speed. If he were falling in an elevator with an opaque door, He would not know he were falling unless he surmised it from the absence of gravitation, as evidenced by his own feeling of lost weight and the queer behavior of the objects in the car. He might fall all his life and never find it out. The law of gravitation is like the criminal law. You don't feel it till you come into conflict with it. Or, if our illustration requires too tall a skyscraper, let us imagine that a comet, as it flies by, knocks a chip off the earth, with a group of people on it. This terrestrial fragment, cast loose in space gets caught by the attractive force of some gigantic and distant star and falls toward it with ever-increasing velocity for thousands of years the inhabitants of this errant orb would never know it from their own feelings or any observations they could make on their own little world does that seem incredible to you then tell me how do you know but this our world is such a planet and together with the solar system has been falling for thousands of years toward some centre of attraction Astronomers, indeed, say that we are moving at tremendous speed toward Canis Major. In other words, that the world is going to the dogs. All this means that uniformly accelerated motion, such as gravitation, imparts to a freely falling body, is, like uniform translatory motion, a question of relativity, and cannot be discovered by an observer carried along by such movement. The idea that uniform translation, like the moving train we have considered, is merely relative motion, is an old idea and not hard to understand or accept. But when we try to extend the principle of relativity to acceleration, that is, to a rate of motion that is continuously increased or retarded, we get a new and revolutionary conception of the universe, and are drawn into some very startling conclusions. Einstein took this step five years ago, and that is what has caused the present excitement. For Einstein, when once he gets hold of an idea, follows it wherever it leads him with the undaunted determination of a Nantucket sailor towed by a harpooned whale. It was a whale of an idea that he harpooned in 1915, and it carried him into strange waters. It led directly to a contradiction or correction of one of the two fundamental postulates which he had laid down as the foundation of his theory of the universe in 1905, namely, that the velocity of light in space is a constant. But he promptly abandoned this idea with cheerful nonchalance, in favor of the new notion that the velocity of light is affected by gravitation. A SUBSTITUTE FOR GRAVITY Let us then follow Einstein and apply his principle of equivalence to accelerated motion and see what it leads to. Imagine yourself shut up inside a closed chamber like an elevator car, somewhere out in space, away from the gravitational forces of the earth or sun. Suppose this chamber to be rising with a constantly increasing velocity. We can, if we want to be definite about it, assume that the chamber is a big shell pulled up by a cable coiling around a conical windlass that hauls it up faster all the time. Or we can assume that it is propelled from behind by the continuous backfire of explosives, like the rocket which Professor Goddard proposes to send to the moon. All we need is some force, not gravitation, capable of giving the chamber every second an additional velocity of thirty-two feet a second. Now the point is that if you were in such an upward-moving chamber, you would not know but what you are resting on the earth. Everything would behave exactly the same. If you now weigh one hundred and fifty pounds on the scales, that is, if your shoe-soles pressed down with that force, the floor of the rising chamber would press upward with that same force, and you would not know the difference. If you let loose a ball from your hand, the floor would rise up to meet it, and it would appear to fall. If you threw the ball upward with a velocity greater than the velocity of the chamber at the moment, the ball would rise, but since the velocity of the chamber was constantly increasing, the floor would gain on the ball and catch up with it. This would look to you just the same as when on earth you threw a ball into the air and it fell back to the ground, drawn, as you are accustomed to think, by the force of gravitation. But here we have no force, but merely a mode of motion. Under such circumstances, it would seem that all nature conspired to keep you in the dark. You appeal to the ether, that supposedly stable and stationary medium that fills all space, but that also fails you. You try the Michelson-Morley experiment to see if you are moving through the ether, or at rest on the earth, but your apparatus expands or contracts just enough to deceive you. You now try observing horizontal rays of light, but they seem to bend. That is, a beam of sunshine entering a pinhole on one side of your camera obscura, will not strike the wall at a spot exactly opposite, but a little below it, if you have instruments sufficiently delicate to show this. You try vertical rays of light in this fashion, you examine with a spectroscope rays of light coming from two sources below behind, your instrument, one at a distance and the other nearer. Now, since you are moving away with increasing speed, the light from the farther source will have to take longer strides to catch up, or, in other words, its frequency will be reduced, and it will be shoved toward the red end of the spectrum, where the longer waves are. You will have noticed that when a whistling train rushes past the train you are on, the whistle as it comes toward you is raised in pitch, decreased wavelength, and as it recedes from you is lowered in pitch increasing wavelength. Now, says Einstein to himself, if my principle of equivalence is correct and there are, is no difference between 1. weight, and 2. the accelerated upward movement of an observer, then all the optical effects that I have thought out in the second case must apply to the first, that is, to gravitation. It must follow that a ray of light passing through a gravitational field will be bent out of its course as though it were attracted by the heavy body. This prediction has been verified, It must further follow that light proceeding from a heavy body like the sun or a star will be held back or slowed down by the attraction of gravitation, and the spectral lines will be displaced toward the left as compared with the same lines of the spectrum of an earthly light. Now such displacement has been observed in stellar spectra, but it does not seem to be of the right value to satisfy Einstein's equation, and it has not been observed in sunlight." The remarkable thing about it is that Einstein, by following a line of reasoning somewhat like that which I have crudely outlined, not merely supplied an explanation for phenomena that had been observed but could not be explained, such as the discrepancy in the orbit of Mercury, but he provided in advance the explanation for phenomena that have never been observed until he directed attention to it, such as the deflection of starlight by the sun. Sir Oliver Lodge says of this, Before Einstein's prediction, nothing of the kind had been seen, nothing of the kind had been looked for, nor, so far as it is known, had such an amount of deflection been suspected. Whatever may ultimately be thought of the validity of Einstein's views as a whole, it is evident that he has worked out a mathematical method of unprecedented power and wide usefulness. Professor Bumstead of Yale says, Einstein's theory is important in that it exemplifies a method which is in many respects new in theoretical physics, and which may prove to be a very powerful method for advancing scientific knowledge. There was no idea that the prediction of the bending of light would fix up Mercury's perihelion, and incidentally explain a two-century-old astronomical difficulty. That came straight out of a blue sky. Mechanical versus Mathematical Minds We sometimes hear it said that Einstein has overthrown Newton's theory of gravitation. That is impossible, because Newton did not have any theory of gravitation, he merely laid down the law of gravitation. He told how bodies behaved toward their neighbors. He did not tell why. Newton was not content with the idea of action at a distance through empty space, and he tried to explain gravitation by the pressure of the ether on material bodies. But he was not satisfied with the results and did not publish them. In the 234 years since, many men have tried their hands at devising some sort of machinery that will explain gravitation. For human beings are like Toddy of Helen's babies, and want to have the watch open so they can see the wheels go out. At least Anglo-Saxons have that desire. Poincaré, the French physicist, said this is the distinction between the Anglo-Saxon and Latin minds. The former are uneasy until they can imagine a mechanical model to represent natural phenomena. The latter are satisfied with a mathematical formula expressing the action. The ether, which was invented to explain light, also required explanation. Lord Kelvin imagined it to consist of spinning tops which have a sort of mobile stability. Sir Oliver Lodge has filled it with a complicated structure of interlocking geared wheels to account for electromagnetic action. These are typical Anglo-Saxon modes of thinking. On the other hand, Einstein, who, in spite of his Hebrew blood and German training, has preeminently what Poincaré claims as the Latin temperament, does not have any use for the ether and does not care at all whether he can picture the fourth dimension on paper or not. Now some of us are excessively Anglo-Saxon, in our attitude toward mathematics. It is with a fellow feeling for such folks that I have filled this little volume with such crude and absurd analogies as trains and elevators and projectiles flying through space and Coney Island mirrors. To the mathematically minded such illustrations are not simplifications, but complications, not representations, but caricatures." Mathematics is the proper language of physics, as the five-barred staff is the proper language of music. Ask a musician to explain a symphony in plain everyday English, and he cannot do it, though he carry the Oxford Dictionary in his head. He can have the music played for us, or he can show us the printed score, but he could never convey it in ordinary language, however long he might be willing to talk or we to listen." But we must not do the musician or the mathematician the injustice to suspect that his notions are hazy or absurd because he cannot explain i.e., translate them to us. Nor should we assume that the new ideas, because they are more difficult for us to grasp, are necessarily more complicated or extravagant than the old. A friend of mine who is familiar with both tells me that Einstein's papers are easier reading than Newton's Principia. The aim of science is simplification through generalization, And this is the widest generalization yet attempted. It promises to bring gravitation into relationship with other forces. One great generalization, the law of the conservation of energy, worked out by Joule and others in the forties, brought heat and work and chemical power all into one simple system. Clerk Maxwell in the seventies brought together one beautiful formulation of all the diverse phenomena of light, electricity, and magnetism. But gravitation has always stood out against any such league of natural forces. It refused to come into the combine. It remained unique, independent, irreducible, unalterable, and inexplicable. Everything else is correlated and interactive. Heat destroys magnetism. Magnetism produces electricity. Electricity dissolves chemical combination. Chemical combination produces heat. Heat causes motion. Motion makes magnetism. Magnetism produces heat. And so on in endless round, each affecting all the others. DIFFERENT SUBSTANCES BEHAVE VERY DIFFERENTLY. One is more easily heated than another. Some are readily magnetized or electrified. Others are not so susceptible. Certain elements rush into each other's arms. Others cannot be forced into combination. But gravitation seemed indifferent to all these things. It showed no prejudices or preferences. It attracted with equal force all sorts of substances, no matter whether they were hot or cold, shiny or black, moving or still, electrified or magnetized or neither. Other forces and effects, too, required time for action at a distance. Sound travels at the rate of 1,100 feet a second in ordinary air. Light travels at the rate of 186,337 miles a second in a vacuum. But the force of gravity seemed not to require any time, but to be everywhere, acting all the while, and nothing could shield it off or shut it out, or, in any way, interfere with it. The substance or mass of a body as measured by its weight, the gravitational pull of the earth, was always identical with its mass as measured by its inertia, its resistance to being set in motion. All the energies are interchangeable. All other forces could be reduced or increased, annulled or brought into effect at will. Not so, gravitation. Any bodies of a certain mass placed at a certain distance apart are always drawn by the same attraction. That is, gravitation is affected by nothing, except geometrical relationships. This naturally leads us to suspect that gravitation is nothing but a geometrical relationship, that it is somehow a peculiarity of space itself. If so, our demand of the physicist that he show us gravitation, drag out this mysterious force from its hiding place and let us see it, is altogether irrational. It is like a blind man hunting in a dark cellar at midnight for a black cat that isn't there. The geometrician tells us that the internal angles of any triangle are equal to two right angles. Shall we ask him? What is the force that makes it so? Shall we refuse to ride on a trolley car until the electrician can answer our persistent question, but what is electricity? When we ask such a question, we are really asking him to tell us what electricity is not. To show us what electricity is, he can keep his mouth shut and simply point to the dynamo that produces it, the wire that conveys it, and the motor that consumes it but what we secretly mean is that he show us a mechanical model that imperfectly imitates some of the actions of electricity, or a mathematical formula, that will calculate its effects. Now Einstein seems in the way of making gravitation the foundation of a new system of geometry. Instead of explaining gravitation in terms of something else, he will explain other things in terms of gravitation, or rather of his space-time manifold of which gravitation is one of the properties. Einstein's law of gravitation proves to be more accurate than Newton's law, but the correction is trifling, except in rare cases. But Einstein's theory of gravitation is fundamental and far-reaching, and, if it is substantiated, it will revolutionize physics and radically affect our ordinary conceptions of the universe. The verification of a prediction does not necessarily prove the truth of the hypothesis that led to the prediction. Many a scientific discovery has come out of a false assumption. Just as a miner may reopen an abandoned gold mine, or work over his dump heap to get more out of it, so scientists often returned to an old theory which they had abandoned for a more fruitful hypothesis. End of section nine. Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa.